Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. Um, you have your phone or your Bible. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is God's word. Good morning, Storefront Church. It's so good to be with you today. Um, uh, David has been a friend of mine as well as Susan's, and especially my wife's, for many, many years. And you know, I recently told David that I could not believe how long I'd known him because I do remember a time when I could actually pick his son up and kind of just toss him in the air. Um, but judging by the latest pictures that I have seen of Pastel, that is very much not going to be happening anymore. <laughs> And you know what? I also remember David telling me that he was thinking about launching this church and he was going to call it Storefront Church. Um, and I remember right when Storefront was about to launch, he was very excited. But then COVID-19 hit. And so I have to tell you, getting to be here in person with you guys and hearing David's vision from the beginning is really, really cool. So thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful that David has given me the chance to preach, but also the chance to tell you about this new ministry that I'm starting at NYU that Chantel kind of mentioned a little earlier. So I am the new campus minister for Reformed um, University Fellowship, RUF, to launch a ministry for international students. And so our hope is to provide a safe place for them to explore the gospel um, through a ministry that is heavy on hospitality and connection. Uh, with our Lord behind us, we hope that many students uh, will come to know Christ who never had the chance to hear the gospel before. Uh, and with NYU hosting more international students than any other school in the United States, we know there's a lot of work to do, but we're definitely very, very hopeful. So our passage today from Acts 8 is really one of the major reasons why I wanted to enter into ministry in the first place. And it's a passage that has inspired me to take on this calling and has in a lot of ways changed my life. Uh, because it shows us how God uses the most remarkable and desperate situations to accomplish his mission and spread the good word of the gospel. And so if you look all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, says this. These are Jesus' final words before he's taken to heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so at this point, if you're an apostle, you think it's probably going to be smooth sailing, right? They're going to go out, the Holy Spirit is behind them, and they're simply going to change the world. They're going to share the gospel, and because the gospel message is so beautiful and powerful and breathtaking and life-changing, that there can only be a positive response to this, right? To learn that despite their sin, the Messiah has in fact come that they had been waiting for and paid the debt for their sins. If they just accept and believe, they will have eternal life. Now, who wouldn't want to hear this good news, right? Well, it turns out, not the people who were in power and not the religious leaders of the day. And despite all the conversions and the changed lives that they were seeing happen, 
It is getting tougher and tougher to be a Christian at this time. Peter and John, the original apostles, they uh, faced the Sanhedrin early on, who were the religious leaders of the day. And they narrowly avoided being charged at first. But by Acts chapter 5, they are imprisoned and only to be freed by the angel of the Lord. They are then put back in jail and they are flogged, which means they were beaten and whipped. But they couldn't find any charges and they were released. And so they were overjoyed. But they were overjoyed not just that they were free, but because they were, had been counted worthy of being um, suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They were persecuted. And so they took pride in this. And for an apostle, it should not have been a surprise that there was suffering involved with being a Christian. Look at what John 15 says. Jesus kind of warns us all about that. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it is because it loves you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. However, I don't think they realized just how bad things would actually get. Because it is one thing to suffer and go to jail. It is another thing altogether to lose your life. Anybody can take a few punches, right? But after that, you sort of have to call things into question. You have to start to count the costs of what you're doing. And so the disciples then are out spreading this word, and the world is shutting them down. And they're about to find out how bad things could be. Because we get to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives his famous sermon, and then he is, becomes the first martyr of the Christian faith. He is stoned to death. They crushed his life out with stone, the text says. So things are getting very tough indeed in this passage, and the stakes of being a Christian have been raised considerably. But this tragic event that happened to one of the greatest leaders of the Christian faith is actually what spurs the joy that we will see by the time we finish our text today. And that is the first big takeaway of today's message, that persecution is actually what launches the very first missionary effort. So let's look at how this works. The first line in chapter 8, it's kind of a continuation of the whole story of Stephen at the end of chapter 7. Um, it says that Saul approved of their efforts. He approved of the stoning of Stephen. And the word in Greek here, it goes a little deeper than just the simple seal of approval or thumbs up. Uh, the word that we see is it's overjoyed and rejoicing almost in the fact that there is this suffering. Because Saul, as we learned, is no friend of Christians and was one of many who were actively working to stamp out Christians. If you look at Acts 7, 58, it tells us that the witnesses of the stoning of Stephen, they laid their coats at the feet of Saul. Now, what does this mean? Because Saul at this point kind of pops in here out of nowhere. And I think the only explanation as to why we gratuitously put Saul in this passage is because the author wants us to see Saul's role specifically in persecuting Christians. Because Saul, as we know, will eventually become Paul in the very next chapter, actually, Acts chapter 9. Once Saul is converted to Paul, he actually tells us in Acts 22 what this laying of the coats means. He says, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there, giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So you see, Saul did not just approve of their efforts. He was actually the instigator. He was the one behind this. And these people... approval in Jewish culture. And you know, I think ironically, as much as Paul has done for moving the gospel forward, and he has done a lot, 
It's amazing to think that before he was ever a Christian, he actually started the first missionary effort. And so the second part of verse 1, as we look at our text, uh, shows how this persecution leads to scattering. And it says, all those that were Christians, everyone except the apostles, that's very important, uh, were scattered. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And these men and women did basically what every other person would do in their right minds. They're as fast as they could and ran as far as they could. Now, as I mentioned before, I, the apostles probably expected suffering. They knew that this was kind of part of the deal. But we're talking here about average Christians. This is not what they were hoping to do, pack up and leave town. This is surely not what they thought they signed up for. Because like we said, this is no mere order to simply change their ways or to simply surrender. Verse 3 says that Saul began to destroy the church house by house. Now, the English word for destroy here does not do it justice. Uh, the word in Greek is illuminato, and it's a very distinct word uh, in textual criticism that is known as a hapax legomena. So you can impress all your friends by saying, I remember what a hapax legomena is. And a hapax legomena is a word that is usually one time in all of scripture. So it's the only time that this word appears. And so when we come across these, we have to think about what it means, because it's obviously there for a specific reason. What we know about this word from extra biblical literature is that the word was used to describe a wild boar ravaging a vineyard or mangling a body and shredding it. It is a brutal and savage image. And you know, this behavior by Saul and this persecution, I think it was so severe and over the top that we actually see in verse 2 that a sign that not everybody was okay with what was going on. Because in verse 2 it says, godly men had buried Stephen. So these men were not Christians. They were probably Jews of the day and didn't want anything to do with Christianity. But they had a sense of right and wrong. Not only this, they showed their sadness by mourning. Jewish law said that you could not mourn and weep over an executed person publicly. But these men defied this rule. They wanted no part of what Saul was doing. One preacher pointed out, and I think it is a good thing to think about, although we cannot prove this for certain, Perhaps some of these men who were praying and weeping became Christians later in life. And perhaps God was working on these men's hearts even then. It certainly seems very possible. And so now that every Christian that has existed is more or less scattered everywhere else, what good could possibly come from that? Because we want safety in numbers. We want to be a united coalition, right? Well, there's a couple ways of looking at the definition of scatter that I think can help us here. By what I just described, you're probably getting the feeling of chaos and disorder and fear. The people are running and fleeing frantically for their lives, and you would be correct. But think for a moment. How else might we use this word scattered? Perhaps in a way that isn't quite so chaotic. Perhaps thinking of someone like a gardener scattering seeds in a field. Now, the purpose of scattering seeds in this context would be to distribute them not in a singular place, but in a large area so that it is able to grow and prosper into something healthy and beautiful. And the funny thing is, Saul thought that scattering these people would dismantle and fragment the church and cause people to give up on this faith. But guess what? Those people ran. But when they stopped running, they started preaching and evangelizing. And more gospel movements existed than ever before. And this is what our Lord is doing. Through this turbulent time, in his perfect wisdom and understanding, 
he knows this is exactly what needs to happen. And so, of course, the first example then that we see in our text of this scattering is in Samaria, right, of all places. Now, if you're familiar with Samaria or Samaritans in the Bible, we have this particular image of someone who is not very well liked by the Jews. In fact, that's probably, I think, being a little bit charitable about it. Uh, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were like this weird mix of Judaism and paganism, and they were considered mongrels, lowlights, the scum of the earth, the worst of the worst. They were considered completely inferior and to be avoided at all costs. Yet in scripture, Jesus uses the Samaritans to make a very serious point about who the gospel is actually for. First, we see Luke chapter 10, the example of the good Samaritan, who does what no one else will do when they pass by that poor destitute man who had been attacked by robbers. And in John chapter 4, we meet the Samaritan woman at the well, who Jesus confronts with her sins, which is mind-boggling, considering no Jew would be caught dead talking to someone like her. But for our Lord Jesus, this was no barrier. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the first place we read the gospel spreading is to right there in Samaria, further showing us what Jesus' upside-down kingdom looks like. And so Philip goes there, he proclaims the word, and being led by the Holy Spirit, he performs miracles. And just look at the result of what happens here. There was great joy in the city. So the fruit of these seeds that were being scattered all throughout the land, we now see are blossoming and coming to life. Joy. This is what the gospel brings. It brings us joy. Jesus tells us in John 15, the things I have spoken so that my joy may be in you. Paul tells us later in Galatians 5 that the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit, the sign that the Holy Spirit is within you, is the presence of joy in your life. This is the natural response of receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn in this passage? Look at how God works. After this passage, we see that Philip He's able to convert this wicked Simon the sorcerer, and he baptizes this man, and this Simon follows Philip everywhere he goes. Then the apostles, Peter and John, hear about what Philip is doing in Samaria, and they join him there, and they continue healing. And then Philip takes the gospel globally by meeting the Ethiopian eunuch at the end of this chapter, who he baptizes, and then Philip goes from town to town to town, preaching the good word of Jesus Christ. Now remember, all of this started with the death of Stephen and persecuting other Christians. One of the most holy apostles suffered a brutal death, and because Stephen died, the world changed. Now, if you are new to Christianity and you are still trying to make sense of how all of this works, the idea of a good man dying is very, very hard to understand. And you know what? I'm with you. Because it's not fair. It is not fair what happened to Stephen. He did everything right, and he suffered far worse than any of us probably ever will in our lives, God will. But you know what? Stephen seemed to know and understand something that we don't always see. It is not about achievement, and it is not about how good or bad we are. Because as New Yorkers, we are trained to seek out the best people and be the best at everything we do so that we can have the nicest things, and we can have power, and we can have influence over others. All this hard work, this should be the reward for our hard work. That is why the gospel is so hard to understand. Because the way up is down, and through death comes life. 
In the 1950s, on the shores of a lonely river deep in the jungles of Ecuador, there were five missionaries who went there to tell this unreached tribe, the Wadani tribe, about Jesus Christ. They prayed and sang that night before that they would be successful and that this tribe would hear the good word of Jesus. Yet the next day, they were all murdered. To many, this seemed like a senseless tragedy. Many could only see that these five young missionaries had lost their lives and that there were five widows now and many fatherless children. If only these men would have just stayed home, their, father, their children would have fathers today. But as horrible and awful as this story is, God did an amazing work through these five men. And it still reverberates to us today, honestly, believe it or not, because one of these men was named Jim Elliott, whose wife was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth Elliott didn't just forgive these people, but she moved with her daughter to this village to live among the people who killed her husband. And through Elizabeth Elliot's life mission of sharing the gospel with others, particularly other women, God brought beauty out of these tragic deaths, and he changed the world for the better, and created countless joy for millions of people. But you know what? Stephen seemed to see the bigger picture as he died. Just before his death, he says this, right at the end of chapter 7. He falls to his knees and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. So his final words, he passed away. He thought about the kingdom growing in his final breaths. This should sound familiar to somebody else we know from the scripture. Our Lord Jesus, as he hung dying, said almost the exact same thing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Everything that we can become in Jesus Christ is possible because he laid down his life for us. And Jesus asked God for forgiveness for the very people killing him. And not only that, for you and I as well. Well, look, the reason this passage moves me so much is, as I launched this, this international uh, student ministry, while I am not being scattered to some far end of the earth, God is doing something really special in New York City. Here's an amazing fact for you. Three of the five countries who send the most students to the United States for education, we cannot send missionaries to. China, India, and Saudi Arabia. Further, out of the 20 countries who send the most students to the United States, 11 of those countries, so over half, are openly hostile to Christianity. It is estimated that 95%, up to 95% of these international students have never met a Christian, been in a Christian's home, or even picked up a Bible, let alone read a word of scripture. Because if you have a Bible in one of these countries, you could be arrested or possibly even killed. You cannot be open about your faith. Well, God is sending them here to New York City. And NYU is just a few blocks away. And as I said before, it is, has more international students than any school in the country. And so when I think about this passage, I think about Acts 8 in reverse. Because these countries persecute and kill Christians, and they try everything they can to stamp out Christians, just like Saul was doing. Yet you know what? God in his providence is not scattering missionaries all over the land this time. He is scattering unchurched people from around the world right here in New York City, where they might have the only opportunity in their lives to have a meaningful encounter with Jesus. Let's start from This is my call. This is what God has called me to. What about you? And you know, perhaps you think maybe you're not equipped enough to share this message to people at your office or to your friends or even people you just know casually on the street. Maybe you feel you don't know enough about the Bible to do that. 
But this message tells us just how qualified you are. Who did God scatter in this passage? Remember, verse one. He didn't scatter the apostles. He scattered other people like you and me. They preached the word wherever they went. Or maybe you think that your past disqualifies you, that you've just had too long of a rap sheet to be of any use to God. Well, look at Saul, who, as we said, delighted in killing Christians. I'm fairly confident that none of you in this room have ever gone down that road. Um, but because, look, as great as Paul is in his epistles, he reminds us of who he really was in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's not forget this. He says, for I am the least of the apostles who are not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So you know what? If God can use a man like Saul and make him the greatest leader in the Christian faith, second to Jesus, he can certainly use you and I, right? Now, this doesn't mean you all have to become ordained and go start your own ministry and hit the road evangelizing. Because God has you where you are right now. And he will use whatever time, talent, or treasures that you have at your disposal for his glory. And you know what? It's going to be hard. Because no one is asking you to die for your faith, but ask anybody who serves in ministry, gospel work is sacrifice. You give up time that you could be using for other things. You give up your resources so you don't have as much money to spend on yourself or to put away for a rainy day. And you know what? When you speak publicly about your faith, people look at you funny, you might even lose some friends. Yet the opportunity is too great. Because there might be somebody moving into your building right now, or a friend or a family member, or you can engage with. Somebody that you see often in a social setting, maybe a coffee shop. There are thousands of people all around us at any given time who have the chance to have a meaningful encounter with Jesus, perhaps because of you. Now, how might you be able to be involved in seeking joy in our city? Well, my hope is that through organizations like RUF and local churches like Storefront, with the help of all the incredible organizations that exist in our city, and there are a lot of them, that we can all come together and find a way to share the joy that we experience in Jesus Christ to others. And you know, I pray that if all of you can find your way in whatever your sphere of influence is, or whoever specifically God is pushing you to reach out to, whatever particular ministry you find yourself called to, that you find your voice and find a way to share this joy with others through your talent, time, and treasures. Now look, I know this world looks like a crazy place right now, but I hope you are encouraged that despite how things may look, that God is at work, very much alive in this city. And he will scatter the joy of the gospel throughout the city through the most unlikely of people to the most unlikely of places. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that despite how challenging or difficult things may be in our lives and in the world, that you are very much at work and working all things out for our good and your glory. Help us to understand and hear your voice in these difficult moments when we face them. And help us to find ways to serve others and share the joy of your son, Jesus, to others in our midst. Remind us, no matter how awkward or hard it might be to do so, that your power really is made perfect in our weakness. And that we simply need to only rely on your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name.